0: Welcome back to another episode of Acquisitions Anonymous, the internet's number one podcast for evaluating and acquiring small businesses. I am one of your hosts, Bill D'Alessandro. I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Girdley and Mills Snell. And today we have an awesome guest, Andrew Swiler uh, from Blink Holdings. Uh, nice to have you here, Andrew.
1: Thanks guys, great to be here.
0: Would you be able to give our guests just kind of 60 seconds, who you are, where you came from, what your background is, what you're doing now, et cetera?
1: Yeah, sure. So. I guess I started in private equity back in Chicago, back in uh, 2006, during the fan- before the financial crisis. I would say my my claim to fame in private equity was I helped shut down 8,500 Starbucks. And at one point, I worked for two different companies that at two different times owned the Polaroid brand. So that was fun, over a five-year period. So illustrious career. Uh, <laughs> then I went to travel for a few months, met my wife, who's from Spain. Uh, her and I lived in San Francisco for a while, started an eyewear company that we sold back in 2019. And over the last couple of years, I uh, became a partner in a SaaS uh, development agency. We've acquired a couple of small DevOps products, and now we are in the middle of an acquisition, of our biggest acquisition yet, a $2 million, uh EV HR, HRMS SaaS product that uh, we're hopefully closing soon. So, Very yes. cool.
0: Lots to unpack there. <laughs> Um, I think we've got a couple of deals, hopefully, that will touch on some of your interesting expertise. But man, you've owned Polaroid twice at two different <laughs> firms, and you still couldn't save it.
1: <laughs> uh, no, no. Well, one of the firms, the guy actually ended up in jail. Uh, that's a whole other story. The, the owner of the other firms. So
0: <laughs> I feel like we might not have enough time to get it all out of you
2: today. Yeah. We may need to have you back. Um,
0: all right, before we dive into it, let me throw it over to Michael for our first sponsor.
2: Yeah, Great. So first sponsor is cloud bookkeeping. So cloudbookkeeping.com is their website. For those of you online on YouTube, you can see see their their website here. Um, it is like many, many accounting websites, green. You know, that's how they that's how they do when you're in the accounting business. So cloudbookkeeping.com, so it's actually owned by my neighbor. Um, We've gone to lunch. Great guy. And they are a set of bookkeepers that are basically here to service and help uh, small business owners. So if you want to focus on your business and you don't want to focus on bookkeeping, they can start to help you do that by outsourcing that to his firm of bookkeepers, all supervised by by him. So full-scale accounting services, sophisticated reporting, and all done around the QuickBooks Online platform. Um, so if you standardize on that, like many small businesses have, give them a call um, and they can get you out of your books and out talking to your customers and building your business. So cloudbookkeeping.com, thanks for being part of our uh, never-ending journey to break even on this podcast. We will get there someday, uh, just like those guys in, uh, in wagon train from the 70s, I promise. Only <laughs> on the wagon train to profitability
0: here <laughs> at Acquisitions Anonymous. All right, Uh, so that means it is time for our first deal, which was provided by Andrew, which is really exciting. Um, So I'm sure he'll have a lot to say. I'll introduce it, and then I'll let the people smarter than me talk. So this business is a franchisor slash licensor of early childhood educational content. So they say they have over 300 franchise locations and service 120,000 children annually, with a 95% parental satisfaction rate. So they offer over 16 years of curriculum uh, for children between the ages of six months and nine years of age. I'm not sure how you fit 16 years of curriculum into nine years. Uh, Maybe some kids are working double time. But they also have a presence in more than 40 countries. There's international franchisee base. As I understand it, and Andrew can expand on this more, they sold this product on CD-ROMs for years until way past the time when people did not have CD-ROM drives anymore. I think as late as 2019, they were CD-ROM-based, but have since transitioned to a digital content distribution model. Uh, Another thing that's interesting about this business is they're very international. They did about 30% of sales in Europe, about 30% in Asia, uh, about 15% in the United States, about 15% in Latin America. They've got over 300 master franchisees, and they've, they distinguish between master franchisees, and enrichment center franchisees, which I assume means you operate a physical location with their brand, area developers, and then licensees, which maybe is like an independent tutor or something. They've got the stuff translated into 22 languages. They say recurring revenue in the form of royalty payments for the content is 76% of total revenue, which sounds pretty nice. It sounds like recurring and nearly 100% margin pretty solid they got an established franchise network they say kids love coming to uh this to this place and the parents are highly satisfied so you know I think it's not all digital delivery I think you can actually go into some of these centers in some places um, if you would like they say that their 15 master franchisees in 21 countries uh, generates 68 percent of revenue so while they have a lot of of kind of end franchisees it seems like they've got this uh, I don't want to say pyramid type model, but sort of sort of pyramid model where they can work through a couple master franchisees to simplify their operations. Uh, And when you've got educational content that has 100 percent margins, I think it makes pretty easy uh, to kind of share the wealth down the pyramid. They say they got a fair bit of competition because it's it's just school. It's early. There's but they seem to have, have carved out a pretty good niche here. They've been around since the 90s. The current owner bought it in 2011, and there's kind of no special entity or licensing or anything, it says. Uh, so it seems pretty straightforward. Uh, as far as financials, they are about $1.3 million in sales, and this has been so steady-eddy since 2017. It has basically oscill- oscillated within plus or minus 5% around that $1.3 million uh, in sales for the last five years, which ought to give you a lot of comfort if you're a buyer. Uh, The EBITDA is also incredibly steady, Eddie, uh, has oscillated between $315,000 and $393,000 for five years straight. Um, So this business is extremely boring, maybe in a good way, um, if you're into that kind of thing, on the financial statement side. They say that they've got, they include a balance sheet here, which does include some current liabilities uh, and some assets, which is kind of interesting. I'm sure we can Unpack that they have a twenty five hundred square foot office um, that they do lease, but it doesn't seem like other than that they have any owned and operated locations. They say management's going to remain through a transition, uh, and that no single client accounts for more than seven percent of revenue they've got strong client relationships, they got a great name, everything is awesome, and they say you know you could you could expand there's a growing market for the company's services, which is interesting because they have not been able to grow. Um, and they, they've got this whole table of growth opportunities, which is add more, Astro franchisees, promote their brand online, migrate their digital curriculum to a new technology platform. I assume that means that they actually need to move to like an actual course platform because it's basically recorded videos on CD-ROM that they've now made available for download. Say so you could sell direct to U.S. schools um, or sell more content uh, to the families. There's a ton more here, but I think I'm going to leave it there and turn it over to uh, the people much smarter than me, Andrew...
2: Michael and Mills to comment. What do you guys think? So just so I understand this, these folks provide content to several hundred franchisees and they only do 1.3 million in, in, in total revenue. Just, I just want to understand how this works. So that's like four grand per franchisee that they're making. Like I had to break out my calculator because I didn't believe the, the bald noggin on that one. That's how little value they're capturing.
1: Uh, yeah, it appears that way. There, there's a couple of red flags on this one. That's one of them. Uh Also, I mean, if you dive into this, the question is, what is really? I mean, a master franchisee and everything else in this type of deal. What I mean, what I like about these types of deals, master finding, ma- being a or and finding master franchisees gives you less points of touch. Like you can just talk to a few master franchisees, uh, and in this case, having 300 seems pretty cumbersome. And I think they're confusing the definitions of master franchisee and just a franchisee, probably. That would be a red flag that they are capturing very little. And the other big red flag here is, uh, if you look, they're only mentioning to 2020. I know they've been hit hard by the pandemic and they have not given any uh, updates on how the company is doing through 2021. And obviously now we're in 2022. So everything was going well. I don't know how things are going now.
0: The le- I was just gonna add, it says in the materials that the lease expired mid 2021, which is also interesting.
3: To me, the... This whole idea, right, of uh, royalty revenue from franchisees as being recurring is kind of suspect. So, like, right, the whole goal of, of, right, any business, right, is as much as you can de-risk the revenue. And so that's why people gravitate towards, you know, recurring revenue. Like, like the next deal we'll look at, it's a SaaS business. To me, I would say this is not recurring revenue, right? Because it's highly fluctuates based on the revenue of your underlying You know, your underlying franchisees. They also charge a 12.5% royalty, which is incredibly high. So I think when you do the math, it's like maybe their franchisees are doing a little over $10 million in revenue. They have a mix of you know royalty and franchise fees and stuff like that. But to me, I I think you're gonna have a lot of pricing pressure on that 12.5% royalty because there's probably not a lot of switching costs, right? Your franchisees could go find a better software. Or you know better, better, basically better content, right? Because it's not even software; it's CD-ROMs. They can find better content. And switch.
2: Well, wait on on the math there. They said they have three hundred end user franchisees, which are in theory operating these little centers where kids come in and use this particular methodology with them. And then the percentage of that is twelve and a half percent. And the math we just did is if there's one point three million divided by 400, 300, four hundred or three hundred, that's forty five hundred dollars per franchisee which means the typical franchisee is doing thirty six thousand a year in revenue like that is that math what you
1: had andrew when you looked at this deal i mean where where i looked at this like what they like i said i think what they're they're confusing master franchisee with franchisees when you look down uh below where they have revenue by master franchisee which is like way down in the sim uh it goes by country and i think that's how they have this really broken out uh so i think what the master franchisees then are franchising this out, and those ones are capturing very little value. I mean, if you go by country, uh, the US is the biggest master franchisee where they're getting uh, about 200 grand. And then from there, uh, one of the fun, fun facts in this one is that 8% of their revenue comes from Kazakhstan, which is a, a, a fun place to be getting your revenue, and 11% from Vietnam. Uh, but I think those are the master franchisees. I mean, they're bringing in per master about 100. In, in these decent ones, I mean, in Kazakhstan, they're bringing in 115 a year uh, in revenue. So I, I, I would base it off of that because I assume that's where their revenue capture is coming from on the masters of the country.
2: So is, is the problem with this business then is that they've given up way too much of the value capture to the master franchisee? Is that that's what's going on?
1: Cause it I could be. I,
2: if, if somebody's running a, a, an enrichment center that's doing 36000 a year in revenue, like you're better off, well, these days going to work at Chick-fil-A, right? Because you could probably get 19 or 20 bucks an hour, and that's better than 36 grand minus a franchise fee. Except, except, right, that most of this is international. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, whatever Chick-fil-A is in Kazakhstan, then. Like, do, they have, do they
3: have it in Kazakhstan?
0: Chick-fil-A in Kazakhstan is not paying that much, though.
2: <laughs> no, I exactly. mean, adjusted for cost of living, right? Is it owned by Borat? No, sorry. All right, anyway, <laughs>
1: back to seriousness. I mean, I, I would say that the that there's also a question around this. If these franchises, if these centers are only using this content, like these could be centers that are sort of like general tutoring centers, that this is just part of the content they use and that therefore they're paying uh, an annual fee for using that. That's what I assumed from reading this. I mean, like like Mills said before we were talking about this, it's really difficult to say what these people actually do if they have like a center with their banner on top or if there's just centers of tutoring that people are using the content for. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a, it's up, in, it's up for debate. Is this a, is this a testament to the idea that
2: especially if you have a complex difficult to categorize business, you really need to make sure that a you hire a good broker to represent you and B you need to read what they're sending out to figure out what the hell <laughs> what the hell they're telling people because there is there is no excuse for the four of us looking at this for 10 minutes and still being clueless about how the business works like z- there is zero excuse for that You should fire your banker if four people who look at hundreds of deals a year have no clue what your business does after looking at the sim.
0: Like, it's so, so you know what, that's a great point, Michael, which I think is, is really important because I know we have a lot of buyers uh, that listen to this podcast, but I imagine we also have some sellers Yeah. and I think, you know, some of us on the podcast have been both buyers and sellers. And it's very, very easy when you're selling a business to kind of end up in the echo chamber because you know what this business does, like the back of your hand, it's imprinted on your brain and you explain it to the broker. So when you read what they wrote. It's a great description, right? Because you have so much context. Uh, so I have actually found success um, when I'm a seller to take the SIM and give it to a friend of mine that does not understand my business at all. And then ask them, you know, hopefully a friend who understands finance, et cetera, you know, but then have them read it and go, what does this business do? Like, are you excited about this business? What questions do you have? And then I take those questions back to the broker because I find that a third party can be a much better interpreter. Just like we were all third parties on this sim. Right. And if the sell and the seller probably read this and thought this was a great sim really explained by business. Um, so if you're selling, I would make sure that it's just not you proving the content.
1: And an interesting note here too, they, their master franchising fees are what, uh, that's their recurring revenue. So that's like built into the contract. That's guaranteed money for them. And it's, from ten to forty thousand dollars. So forty thousand is the maximum they charge, and the way that they do this is based off of uh, based off of geographies, regions, uh, range of of uh, income in those regions, and population. So imagine like the the brain damage that goes through putting that calculation together in their home office when they get Kazakhstan on the phone and try to figure out what that master franchise is worth. Oh boy, <laughs> oh boy.
0: Uh, so, but what do we like about this business? I mean, there's some things to like about
2: it, right? Oh, no? definitely. I mean, it's super high leverage. Uh, <laughs> it's super high leverage, right? You have a master franchisee situation. Like, you know, it's it's definitely like very sticky revenue or at least consistent until COVID came in and blew it up. You know, it's got a global exposure and you look at kind of where they're, you look at where they're looking at going into these new markets. There's like Africa, Asia, you know, Southeast Asia, Places that the U.S. military just vacated, like there's all kinds of those, like type places where they're expanding and having a global footprint on it. I mean, the thing I keep coming back to is, man, this is a huge value and a huge impact on a lot of people, and they're just capturing so little of the value through the whole value chain. Structurally, just it, they took what should have been a nice business and turned it into a lifestyle business so anyway that's that's my pluses but there's just one negative that's just like way too big it's like oh like you structured this the wrong way for you to really get above the hump of size right because at this like 1 million plus it's that you're somebody has to buy themselves a job unfortunately
1: yeah yeah i mean the question too is what do these contracts look like are they renewable annually are they renewed every three four years how can you restructure these if you put together sort of a platform instead of delivering i mean obviously before cd roms and now People basically download these off of a Dropbox, it seems like. Uh, So if you actually built a platform optimized for SEO, drove traffic to these franchisees and like built a distribution network for them, what kind of value could you capture then? I mean, because it it seems like they have a brand in education. Uh, The question is just having someone that operates and knows what they're doing to, to convert that into a distributed brand. So I'll take the other side of this. I
0: think this could be awesome. When I see a business that is so flat for so long and reads like a lifestyle business to me, this tells me that the owner is completely unmotivated and totally checked out. And when you've got that combined with a scalable 100% margin business model like that, you know, no, no business for sale are perfect, right? But this looks to me like a long lever you need to pull. Now, you're going to have to pull it. This is not one of those businesses that is just, you're just going to buy it and it's going to explode. But if you are a good digital marketer, you understand online courses, and you're up for restructuring some of these agreements, Andrew, as you mentioned, you know, probably squeeze a little bit more juice out. But frankly, this business is doing 1.3 million sales. Just grandfather all those people and triple your business with new people you know, like there's, there's, this is not a big business. Like I would think, and also it's, there's so high leverage, you know, your EBITDA is going to explode. Your incremental dollar is going to drop pretty much straight to the bottom line. I would think Uh, if you structure it correctly and try to go direct and maybe avoid the whole franchisee model, if you could, you're probably going to break some eggs because people think they're exclusive in certain countries. I'd be willing to bet, but you know, taking this to a kind of learning platform where you can track kids' progress, you can provide assessments. Like I think you could offer and extract a lot more value. But to me,
1: this owner is just phoning it in, obviously. So I think that's an opportunity. I agree. And that was why I looked at it for a while. It's, uh, it definitely has some hair on it, but it, uh, you do need to be great at marketing and be able to get out there and get the name of this company out there. And, you know, take what the content is and rebuild it. There's there's also, I mean, the, the question around the contracts, if we did this when we were franchising in different countries, we would give people a head start on cities or on certain geographies. And if they were able to open customers or open stores in that geography, but not in other parts of the country, we would then recapture uh that other part on the map. So that's a possibility you could say, hey, you're in Kazakhstan, you have, you know, whether neighborhood or city or whatever. And now gonna <laughs> take this other part. Hopefully focusing on more lucrative markets than Kazakhstan. But no offense to any viewers from Kazakhstan that are here
0: did you, did you learn andrew as you were learn about this business who is their end market like are they teaching english to foreigners are they teaching kids of expats like american style schooling that they can't get like what
1: is the value prop here like why is it so international that i'm not sure of like honestly it's it's not un, it's not english at all i mean it's not english focused it is an english based obviously because the, the, all the content is in english Um, it, at first when they were, when I was reading, it it seemed like it was more for like gifted learners. Um, that seemed to be sort of the angle because they have a lot of angles around STEM, uh, around uh, science, music, robotics camps. So I I think that's the angle here, but I mean, I never got to see any of the content or test it out of my kids to see what, uh, what the reaction was. Yeah. So, so context wise,
2: you know, this deal's kind of been around for a while and it's, I guess, boomeranged back to you and, the first time around, you were interested in it. Second time, you weren't interested in it. You know what? What changed for you? Was it stuff on your side? Was it stuff about the market? What you know? What, tell, tell us a little bit of the
1: context that made both of those decisions kind of make sense for you. Uh, the first time, it just was so unclear what was going on post COVID. They wouldn't give straight answers. Uh, basically, they just said like all the franchising fees are covered. Like they're they're paying their franchising fees, and that's it. And I was like. Well, what else is going on? Like, what are, are the centers shutting down? Are you getting any royalties? I mean, you're, you're basically saying, okay, 50 percent of our our revenue is covered, uh, but I couldn't get a straight answer on that. And then when it boomerang back around, I'm I'm just too busy right now. I got too much in my plate to, to deal with this. But I, I agree with Bill. I, honestly, it's it's one of those deals that you feel like you know if you could find the right operator that really knows about uh, online courses. I I love the franchiser model for, for any business like. I think it's super fun and it's super lucrative and super hands off.
2: Yeah, well, it, it, a counterpoint to that, this smells to me, and, and Andrew, I think this—you've you've done a bunch of SaaS, so you know this uh, and have seen it. But like, there's two types of legacy softwares you can buy now: either ones that have not made the transition to the cloud, or ones that are expecting you to make the, or that have already made the transition to the cloud. And to me, this kind of smells like that, like. There's a lot of times where people go in and buy these packaged software or licensed software businesses that haven't gone to a SaaS model. And like when you dig into that, you're like, oh, like this is much easier said than done, like super hard. Yeah. And this smells to me like exactly that, but for education. Um, no, so our, any- our
1: agency does a lot of those. So I agree. Those are, <laughs> are difficult.
2: Those are those are tough sounds. Any any price I pay, it's like, well, tell me where they are in the c- cloud transition. And your options are either we're just gonna run out the string on license and maintenance and stay on prem, or like we're gonna discount the deal enough to make it worthwhile to do as a a conversion. So it's a lot yeah. of work, a lot of work, and it's not just yeah. technical. It's like you got to change the whole business, the pricing model. You got to run two two product lines in parallel for some period of time. You got to double train your staff. Like it's really expensive. Really expensive.
1: So to give some context, too, this was going pre-COVID. Their their first sales price, and this was 1.7 million, is what they were hoping to get. I don't know what they would be asking for now. I assume it's been reduced significantly.
2: So that was
0: six times, roughly five six times, even Yeah. Yep.
2: A man can dream.
0: (laughs) It's a woman in this case. (laughs) Well, I was
2: trying not to give
0: that away. Maybe you're the one dreaming, Gurley, about
2: owning this business. I dream about a lot of stuff, and most of it I don't talk about.
0: (laughs) All right. Let's wrap that one up. Um, And before we move on to deal number two, Michael, if you
2: could give a shout out to our second wonderful sponsor. Uh, our second sponsor is our number one Canadian sponsor. Uh, and if you are Canadian, we are interested in more Canadian sponsors because you guys are so nice. Uh, and it's the David C. Barnett Small Business and Deal Making Podcast. So this is their fifth episode of sponsor. So thank you to David. So David uh, operates out of Canada, number one Canadian sponsor. And he has a podcast and a bunch of content around buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium sized businesses. And you can check out his podcast. He also uh, offers listeners of our podcast a free book that he has created called 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. And you can find a link to download your copy and find David's YouTube channel in the show notes below. Uh, And if you go either on our podcast on YouTube or on your audio app, you can see the link to those. And uh, please go check out um what david is doing as we discussed before we're on episode like number 65 for us uh, david's like on 400 and something so mills and i were were flabbergasted by how how prolific he is so check out the david uh, c barnett small business podcast i just got to love i got to appreciate david's candor i feel like he vibes very well
0: with the acquisitions anonymous podcast uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see 21 stupid things people do when trying to buy a business. And he introduces it by saying, "Every day, thousands of really awful businesses go up for sale, and thousands of good businesses go up for sale with outrageously inflated asking prices." So I just appreciate David's <laughs> style. Uh, so go check out David's podcast uh, and the free ebook. He seems um, that we
3: share the same bias.
0: Super duper yes,
2: dura. <laughs> fits right in.
3: Yep,
0: love uh, it. Uh, all right. Uh thank you, David. Let's pass it over
3: to Mr. Mills now for deal number two. Yep, yeah, I got it, Michael. I think my internet is better now, so I can. Did
0: edit.
2: you kick the so hamster? We have a. Uh... <laughs> for those of you listening, Mills Mills has the worst internet in history, and the joke I always <laughs> ask when it goes out is, "Hey, go go wake up the hamster. He stopped running on the wheel to power your modem." So, anyway, go go for if, it, Mills. It
3: feels like that sometimes. So uh, we have a, a deal. Michael hasn't pulled up. For those of you on YouTube, but it's a uh, a deal that uh, Reg Zeller sent over to us. I don't know. Part of me wonders if if there wasn't a business broker on here, I would think that maybe Reg created this listing to bait us. But um, it's software for the foundry and metal casting industry. It's based in the Midwest. This honestly sounds like it. It sounds like he's spoofing us. But there's no asking price. They don't say how much cash flow the business generates. The revenue is uh, $1,180,000 a year. This has to be a typo, but the EBITDA is $10. There's no furniture, fixture, and equipment, no inventory. They don't say when the business was established. The description that we have, and this is kind of brief, but we're going to banter about this because uh, we we can come up with something to say. A business software company serving companies in the foundry and metal casting industry. The company's software provides enterprise resource planning, ERP, and manufacturing execution systems, MES, software to clients using a -a software-as-a-service, SaaS, and on-premise deployment models. That is uh, a bunch of acronyms. Key aspects. Industry-leading technology designed for foundries and metal casting companies in the U.S. and globally. Recurring subscription-based revenue model, over 30 years' worth of industry experience. The growth and expansion plans, which we see a lot of, you can expand national and international sales and marketing efforts, expand into additional verticals beyond aerospace and defense, which I guess that's one of their specialties we didn't know about. Increase technical talent by hiring developers and software engineers, increase research and development efforts in order to integrate the software into new technologies, for example, Internet of Things, IoT. And it gives the uh, broker's contact information. We tried to find him on the brokerage houses website and couldn't. So not not a lot of information to go on on this one, except we know their revenue and we know the vertical they focus on.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things we commented on is there's good sims and bad sims and there's good teasers and bad teasers. I put this as a bad teaser to some extent. You have to wonder in Tyrus's defense when there's something this specific. I mean, there maybe are two, maybe three packages in the whole world that focus on this particular vertical market for, for software. So this broker, you know, before I poop on him and be like, this is the worst teaser I've ever seen, which it's pretty close. Um, but before I poop on him, he may be getting direction from the client like, Hey, you need to really anonymize me because I don't want my clients knowing how much I'm doing. But yeah, this, this is another example of man. If I was hired this broker, I would be really disappointed. <laughs> this was the amount of promotion they're doing in my business to create a market for me. So yeah.
0: is this not the wet dream of all searchers and would-be SaaS holco co <laughs> assemblers, right? Niche, SaaS, super sticky because it's ERP. There's probably not, it's smallish, so Google's not going to come into your space. Probably sent, like, like it, this is what everybody wants, right? I mean, this is Constellation software,
2: right? Uh, it's Except for
1: the lack of cash flow. <laughs> that's,
2: <a> big, <laughs> well, that's a big We issue. don't know about the cash flow, but also this is too small. Like, like yeah. the, the problem with this is, and all software businesses that are like in this one to one and a half million dollar, like no go zone of revenue is it's almost impossible to build a team out of anything other than an owner operator, right? Like, how do you find somebody? How do you build a sales organization? How do you grow the thing without either hiring a unicorn type person who you can put in charge of it or like just getting stuck, right? And so so Constellation, for example, doesn't really want to go sub 5 million on stuff like this. They tend to only do it totally around earnout. So that's your problem. Um, it, it may also be that they have 100% of the total addressable market here. Like you may be buying something and you really can't get it to 2 million because they have 95% of the 250 foundries that are still in operation globally. So, so that's kind of the, the one big thing about why this is actually probably good for a searcher looking to, for a job or a self-funded searcher especially is like, you know, you're not going to see a lot of competition from the people that are paying big
1: multiples. So Andrew, you were about to say something before I went on a tirade. I mean, Google and Microsoft aren't going to come into this market, but you are competing with Google and Microsoft because there are a lot of these types of companies that their ERP is Excel spreadsheets. I mean, I know a lot of companies that are more industrial and that is their ERP. And if you try and get them to transfer onto something else, a big majority of this market is just going to say like, I've already got this built out. I've got this guy that sits in our accounting department and our finance department. He kind of takes care of all this stuff. So you are competing indirectly with them also w- looking at this type of sim I mean when they just say like ERP or mes or something like that it's so hard to know what this actually does mm-hmm. as a product like you're you're coming in totally blind as to like what the actual value add is here and I, I I was saying about the cash flow because when he puts 10 bucks of EBITDA usually when I see these and I've reached out to people it means there is no EBITDA at least that's been my experience with these types of companies so I mean these guys are doing a million bucks in sales and not making money which If they just built this in the last five years, okay, because they're building up the product. But if it's been around for a while, it's one of those like old legacy SaaS deals, that's kind of a red flag.
3: Don't you think too, like if you own a foundry business or a metal casting business and you need software uh, or you're thinking about migrating from Excel, right? And you know, just something that's kind of antiquated to software. I mean, it almost seems like this type of business needs to be like all things, not to all people, obviously, but they need to be like all things to like 100 people. And I have a hard time imagining, right, that at roughly a million dollars in revenue, that they are like fully saturating the that specific niche and vertical. Like, and, and then, right, if you go broader, if you say, hey, look to the red sellers of the world, we want to be your one stop shop for all your software. It's very difficult to compete, right? Because you may have at a business this size, you may have like one developer or an outsourced developer, I'm guessing, and you're competing against somebody who's like, hey, we do ERP that isn't industry specific, but it's industry agnostic. You can plug anything into it. And so all of a sudden, if you say, hey, we want to do ERP, but also we're going to add on like a, a customer relationship management module, CRM module. Or, right, we're going to help you manage your supply chain better. Like, there are other providers that do those things way, way, way better. And they're probably built dynamically enough and flexibly enough that they don't have to be industry specific. So it sounds like if you're going to buy this business, you better have a
0: damn clear path to $5 million in sales, at which point it might start to get interesting. And if you can't clearly articulate a way to 5x this business,
2: you better be sure you love running it. <laughs> because you're gonna yeah. you're gonna be stuck running it. This is a really interesting sentence here too. You can tell what niche they're actually in and who they're selling to. They're selling to aerospace and defense. Ex- the growth and expansion expanded into additional verticals beyond aerospace and defense. So they're not selling to the red sellers of the world. They're selling to the guys who are making custom parts for Boeing and stuff like that. It's very interesting. Sorry, uh, Andrew, are you about to say something?
1: No, no, that, that is an interesting point. So what do you think? That's like a deflection, like putting the the top line saying it's for foundries and that it's actually for a different vertical. Well, you know, so we learned from Reg, there's actually different segments
2: of the foundry market and different ones are more appealing than others. And if I recall correctly, he was very positive on the type of geographic moat type foundry that he does, which is a specific type of metal and a specific type of customer base. Um, And he was actually really poopy on aerospace and defense. Like, I think, Bill, you and I were talking about how excited we were you know, it's like, well, somebody's got to pay up for those parts if you're going to make sure your airplane doesn't fly out of the sky, fall out of the sky. And you know, I can't remember the argument, but Reg was like, "No, no, you're wrong. Actually, you want to be in the corner of the market where I am because aerospace and defenses is, is harder to service um, as a foundry." So I found I found that interesting. But yeah, so that's why I brought that up. I was like, okay, I remember Reg saying like. These were problem verticals to focus on as a foundry because, because of different reasons. And I think maybe it was because there was too few buyers. Right, the number of aerospace and defense companies. There's only a handful that are actually going to be buying parts from you. Yeah. All right. Cool. Anything further on this one? Look, I think it's worth getting the sim. I would. I, you know, you know me. I'm like the half glass full guy, uh, glass half full guy. And uh, like, I think it's worth getting in the sim and seeing if there's something here. And the good news, at least from for me at this time of the cycle, is this kind of looks crappy. So maybe there's something here. It's like a treasure hunt. So um, Which means maybe, they're only
1: asking $5 million probably. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, that's why one of my business partners uses this phrase, like, that's where you just got to hang around the hoop. Just got to yeah. wait for that rebound. You know, so they, yeah. they come back to you.
0: You know, in this market, you know, so many, I hear so many searchers, I know you guys probably do too, search for two years and they don't pull the trigger on anything. Because they want it to be perfect, you know, and they're out there looking for this business that has just checks all the boxes and is automatic yes. Well, guess what, y'all? Those businesses either don't come to market, sell instantly, uh, or you can't afford them. Yeah. So, you know, ultimately, if you're trying to get into this, you're going to want to find something that has something wrong with it, but that something doesn't bother you that much. Yeah. yeah. Right? Either you want you're okay working in the business or you have a plan to fix that thing. That's wrong with it. Like, or you think you can, you're uniquely qualified to grow this or whatever. So many people go into acquisition through entrepreneurship as kind of saying, treating it more like investing than operating, right? Like they want to, they want to invest in something, and continue sitting on their butts. But the reality is you got to invest with a growth thesis. I mean, that's kind of table stakes, right? Like what are you doing investing in a business if you don't think you can grow it and, and having a fully baked growth thesis. So like on this one, if I, let's, let's say someone was searching and I was backing their search. I would be very hesitant to pull the trigger on funding this acquisition unless they were very sure and
2: explicit about how it was going to get to $5 million. But that yeah. wouldn't be a reason not to do it if I bought their growth thesis. Well, there's. I think it's one of Brent Basore's lines is like, you know, there, there's a reason these businesses are small. Like, there's if if the if the business was really that perfect, they would be public by now after 30 years. So that's <laughs> the one. And then then another way of encapsulating what you you just said that I heard a smart investor say once was every deal has red flags. It's just your job to a know what those red flags are, and then b figure out how you're going to deal with them. So, if you're sub 5 million, there's some huge red flags like banner size, and you just need to make sure you know what they are and then understand that's just the way it works with tiny businesses. Exactly. All right. Cool. Uh, Well, let's
0: wrap that one up. Let's, before we ask Andrew to give us his final thoughts, let's throw it over to Michael just to summarize the sponsors.
2: Yeah. Thanks again uh, on our never ending quest to break even, Uh, like Don Quixote. 2,500-page book. We'll get there. Uh, The David C. Barnett Small Business uh, Podcast. Check out his free book that he's made available to our listeners. Uh, And there's a link below in the show notes for you there. And my neighbor, Charlie, and cloudbookkeeping.com, if you want to outsource your QuickBooks and accounting uh, to a trained uh, professional group of professionals all in the U.S., Charlie is the one to check out there at cloudbookkeeping.com. So thank you to both of our
0: All right. Thanks to our sponsors. So, Andrew, thanks so much for being with us today. If our list, Where can our listeners kind of find you? What can they do to help you out? Um, you have any asks? Follow you on Twitter, send you deals. Uh, how can everybody help you out? Where can they find you?
1: So you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Swiler a, uh, S-W-I-L-E-R-A. A, uh, S-W-I-L-E-R-A. Our SaaS agency, if you guys are acquiring a SaaS company, you need TechDD, uh, you need a, a partner to work with, uh, our SaaS company is called FirstPrinciples.io. Uh, we work with actually quite a few independent sponsors and, um, and tech companies that are, are acquires and tech companies. And right now we are finishing up our fundraising on, uh, this acquisition. So if there are any investors that are interested, uh, got a couple of holes left to, to fill there. So hit me up. All right. Sounds Andrew, good.
3: Have you told the story of, uh, of selling your, uh, optical business anywhere? Has that like been recorded on a podcast? I, I would love to listen to it or, and, mm. and point other people to it.
1: No. No, there's uh, like the actual sale of it. There's a whole bunch of odysseys that we went through to get to the sale uh, over the years, but no, I've never recorded it all to to sort of give the background. We
3: have friends who record uh, interview style podcasts about uh, founders or sellers journey. So uh, for for
1: those of you who listen, Andrew should be on your list because I really want to hear his story. All right. I'll uh, hopefully someone wants to ask. It's it's interesting. Yeah. It was my wife and I, so it was kind of, you know, it's a couple that built a business and solved. It's so it just fun. Very it's super cool. cool, man. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thank you, guys.